the philosophies of ancient Greece come head-to-head -head with Christian persuasion as the Apostle Paul makes his case before the city council of Athens. On The Bible Brief. The Bible Brief is a project of the Bible Literacy Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to helping people like you learn the Bible. Check out our website today at BibleLit.org. From Psalm number 19, a psalm of King David, considering the skies speaking and the scriptures speaking. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Persuasion is an art too rarely practiced. Perhaps persuasion isn't attempted because we think people aren't open to being persuaded. We may think that making reasonable arguments in an effort to sway is just not possible in our online world. A world of anonymity, accusation, and cancellation. Yet persuasion is one of the steps that Jesus would have us take. Learning the art of seeing a person, understanding their context, and using all of our faculties in an attempt to persuade that person of a simple, yet profound truth. We seek to persuade others that Jesus is the master that they need to follow. This may be a tall order for us. We may be nervous to talk about Jesus with others. We may lack confidence in where to start, or we may fear offending the sensibilities of the person across from us. We have perhaps a thousand ways that we can attempt to excuse ourselves from our mission. But that call doesn't excuse the command of the Master. Jesus says, follow me, and his way is a way of persuasion. God doesn't leave us without tools, though, because he gives us two primary tools that can be used together to form very persuasive arguments. The first tool is the nature all around us, while the second and more important tool is the scriptures themselves. Two tools for us to use to help others see the glory of the good news of Jesus Christ. The tool of nature can be used to help others see that there's something beyond themselves, something that may be mysterious to them, too large to comprehend fully, and too vast to completely explore. Nature shouts these things at humanity. God's eternal power. God's holy deity. When we are honest with ourselves, we look at the night sky in wonder and in awe 
feeling our smallness in the presence of such beauty and vastness. This feeling is something that God put into us. It's a perception so clearly perceived by humans that none can say that they didn't know of God. We look up and the sky shouts, God made me. One use of this first tool of nature is to help others discover that there are non-physical truths that are accessible to humanity. Beauty isn't a fiction, it's a reality, and we can see it in a sunset. Truth isn't relative, it's unmoving, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. Goodness isn't arbitrary, it's absolute. We can see it in a helping hand. Nature expresses these wonderful truths and exclaims the very existence of a creator and designer. But nature doesn't get people all the way to Jesus. No, for that, we need tool number two, the scriptures. All the books of the Bible create a foundational unity that begs to be shared. A garden of goodness and beauty. An exile from the garden for disobedience. A savior expected a crucified king, a commissioned church, a time of great trouble, and a reigning king in a new garden city. The Bible tells the story, and it provides evidence of the identity and mission of Jesus, the king. Prophecies in the Hebrew Bible tell us how we will identify this king. The Gospels tell us that the king has come, and the letters of the New Testament tell us how to live in expectation of the king's return. This tool of the scriptures answers our fundamental questions. How should I live? Why is there evil in the world? Why am I here? Where is the world going and what is the meaning of life? It's these two tools, nature and the scriptures, that in conjunction with the Holy Spirit can help draw people to God. Nature declares that God is, and the Bible declares who God is. The special thing that God commands us to do is to share His gospel as persuasively as we can, knowing that the Spirit is working even through our feeble words. Our honest, humble persuasion will convince some, and it will be dull and foolish to others. Some will come to faith, and some will harden their hearts. Some will hail the coming King, and others will plug their ears. Paul and his companions have been hard at work since that prison night in Philippi and the conversion of that jailer to following Jesus. They were on a journey, a missionary journey, and they soon came to the city of Thessalonica. And a new city meant going to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So first, Paul goes to the synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. Paul and his companions soon had to leave Thessalonica, but the work of the gospel there had begun and had already borne fruit. 
A church had been established in the city, as many were persuaded by the reasoning of Paul. But now out of Thessalonica, they were headed to the next city. Berea was next, and the synagogue was the first destination. So Paul went there, and he discovered something much better in Berea than in their last city. He found that the Jews at this synagogue were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. Did you notice what made the Jews here more noble and what made many more of them believe? It was because they searched the scriptures to see if Paul's words were true. They took the tool of God and used it to test the words of Paul. Then having discovered that his words held up to the scriptures, it says that therefore many of them believed. God used Paul's persuasion from the scriptures and the testimony of the scriptures themselves to bring these Bereans to faith. It's always a good invitation to bid others to search the scriptures. But Paul's next challenge would be to use the other tool that God gave to point a new city to the gospel of Jesus. Having been to Thessalonica and then Berea, he now quickly set sail to escape these stirred up crowds and headed to Athens and Greece by himself, awaiting his companions to come later to join up with him. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the city council at the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Paul could have just sat and waited for his companions from Berea to join him again. But Paul wasn't one to waste an opportunity. Instead, having first visited the synagogue to proclaim the good news to them, he also began to go to the marketplace in this important city littered with idols and false worship. At the marketplace, he encountered people of the philosophies of the day, the Epicureans who made a mission to find all the pleasures of life, and the Stoics who made it a mission to bring their whole being into step with nature, nature itself being their god. And these Greeks, philosophers by profession, scoffed at Paul, and they made fun of him as he began to speak of the resurrection of Jesus. Despite their pettiness, however, their curiosity got the best of them. They couldn't resist new ideas and new teachings, and Paul's message was perhaps the perfect distraction from their arguments between one another. So despite their clear disdain for Paul and his unsophisticated speech and rhetoric, they gave him opportunity to share the message for which he lived. So Paul, standing in the midst of the city council at the Areopagus, said to them, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Don't miss Paul's amazing attempt to persuade all of these Gentiles away from their false philosophies and false worship. While their philosophical conclusions result in false worship, he takes some of those conclusions and appropriates them for his own message. First, he takes an altar that he finds in the city, an altar inscribed with the words, to the unknown God. Paul takes this and says, in effect, you Athenians seem to know that there's a God that hasn't been known to you, and that God has sent me to tell you about him. Then Paul proceeds to make biblically informed arguments about nature. He explains that the true God created the world and everything in it. He sits above his creation and he gives life to everything. He gives the nations their boundaries, and all this he gives that people should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Paul essentially says, everything about the world shouts that God exists and God wants you to seek him and find him. Then he moves to the second point and says, Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul actually quotes from famous Greek poets to bolster his argument for the closeness of God and his all-encompassing presence. And from here, he moves to the fact that in a sense all of humanity are offspring of God. This invalidates any notion that an idol could be God, because obviously humans don't come from idols. Paul has appealed to the Epicureans to look beyond their pleasures to the God behind pleasure itself, saying that all good things come from God. Paul appeals to the Stoics, saying that the nature that they worship was actually designed and maintained by the God who stands apart from nature. And then Paul brings his argument to its conclusion. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
Paul has used the tools that God gave, nature in the scriptures. He took the context, applied the tools, and came out having invalidated both major philosophies. Finally, he expresses that God commands them all to repent, to turn away from these vain things, to avoid the righteous judgment of Jesus on this behavior. Paul has done a masterful job of persuasion, and he's done it by the Spirit of God. And yet, only a few are convinced. Because when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius from the city council and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Christians are to follow Paul's example of biblically informed persuasion. We aren't to twist the truth, to obfuscate through fancy language, or to depend upon illustrious vocabularies. What we are to do is to use the tools that God gives us, nature in the scriptures, to use those tools to persuade those in our lives of the wonderful good news of the gospel. We observe social context, we study the culture, and where we can, we build bridges to the truth of God. We wield these tools with our minds and our mouths, while the Holy Spirit does His own work in us, through us, and in all the people that we talk to. The gospel conquers strongholds not with swords, but with words. Words of God's ambassadors to every nation, going to the marketplace and bringing good news. The Bible Brief is brought to you by the Bible Literacy Foundation, dedicated to helping people like you learn the Bible. Copyright Bible Literacy Foundation 2023